The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me. But you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. The Gospel of the Lord. I pray that God's word be spoken and God's word heard. Amen. I said this at 8 o'clock. It's customary for guest preachers to always thank the congregation for the invitation, the privilege of preaching in your place. And I I never do that um, because I always feel like preaching is always a privilege, whether you're in someone else's church or your own. There's nothing different about that privilege. But in this particular case, I want to thank you because actually... You didn't invite me. I invited myself. (laughs) So thanks for accommodating me. Um, I really wanted to come and talk about the cathedral, which I did at the adult education. And I'm going to reference a little bit of my sermon, but this is important. It feels important for me to get out and connect with the people in the diocese. So thank you very much for accommodating that desire. Um, In the story from Acts that we heard that was read, the account of Peter raising a woman from the dead, a woman who had been dead so long that her body had already been prepared for burial, washed and anointed. It's a vivid and powerful story of healing. It's not dissimilar to the story in John of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Although the intent of the author of the Gospel of John was to offer that story as one of the signs that shows that Jesus is the Messiah, While in Acts, the author of Acts is trying to show the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit that was coming to all the people after Jesus had ascended, moving among them and animating this new movement that would become the church. In fact, the whole book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, has that purpose. It's demonstrating that after Jesus ascended, after he was no longer around, leaving the disciples physically, in fact, they weren't left alone. God had sent the Holy Spirit just as Jesus promised them that he would, which came to them and to others, to Paul, to Stephen, and it helped spur and encourage this new movement that was creating the community that would become the church. So these stories and acts serve two purposes. They remind the Christians themselves that they were not left alone. Even though Jesus wasn't there, they weren't on their own. But it also was for those outside the movement. It was kind of PR. 
It was demonstrating for people who had never heard Jesus or experienced Jesus that God was working in the world. God was a part of this new movement. And um, they could trust it and be a part of it. And the stories, in fact, worked. 2,000 years ago, we're listening to them. That's why we're in church, because that word spread. So, I want to share another kind of healing story, a different healing story that's more recent. It happened in the late 70s, about 30 years ago. And I believe it also shows the power of God working in the church and in the world, although in a very different way. So it's mainly focused on an Episcopal priest that I'll call Bruce. I'll call him that because that's his name, Bruce Young. For many years, he was the rector of the Episcopal Church in Woburn. It was Trinity Church. It's Trinity Church in Woburn. He's now retired. And by virtually all accounts, including his own, he wasn't a particularly dynamic or exciting preacher. The church wasn't exploding with membership under his leadership. It was a pretty steady, quiet place in a blue-collar town. In his parish was a mother, Anne. I believe she was a single mother, but I may not have that right. But her son, Jimmy, contracted leukemia in his early teens. And so she would take him into Boston to Dana-Farber for the treatment. And Bruce Young, because he was her priest, would do what he could to help her, which was sometimes he would accompany her, sometimes he would even drive Jimmy himself to relieve her of that responsibility. This mother, Anne, kept telling Bruce that she thought Jimmy got cancer from the drinking water because it smelled funny and it tasted funny. And she knew a whole lot of other families whose kids had cancer. So she thought the water was giving all these kids cancer. Because Bruce was an experienced priest and he had training in pastoral matters, he knew what was really going on with her. That in the face of an overwhelming and uncontrollable event that felt catastrophic, like cancer, people need to find some way of getting control. So she was seizing on this as an explanation. And that her fixation on this bad drinking water was her attempt to come to terms with what was really an unexplainable, awful reality. That her son had leukemia and he was seriously ill. And there was no other reason for that other than that's what happens to people in life sometimes. So Bruce tried to listen sympathetically without judgment. But he knew, as everyone else at that time knew, you can't get cancer from drinking water. That's just stupid. But the mother persisted in her belief. She kept insisting that the water in Woburn was bad. There were too many kids with cancer, far more than what would be normal statistically. And because Bruce cared about the mother, and because in spite of whatever deficiencies he had as a preacher, he was at heart a pastor, he wanted to support her, even though he knew she was wrong. So he spent time and energy trying to track down the instances of cancer in that town, painstakingly finding out how many cases of cancer there were and what kind in Woburn. I may not have all the details right, but what I think how he did this was he organized meetings in the parish with the help of the mother, put out notices in the town and inviting people that had cancer to come to the church 
just so they could be counted. It was in an effort to get to the heart of how many cases of cancer there were. So think about this for a minute. Just step back. Think about a priest, the rector of a parish, with all that needs to go on in a parish, with Sunday school and choir rehearsals and adult education and liturgies and stewardship and all the kinds of things that happen. And think about that priest spending time and energy in the town on a wild goose chase, inviting people with cancer to come and sort of be listed as statistics. And add to this mix the fact that the guy's not a particularly gripping preacher or speaker. So already there's some suspicion that if there were a different priest in that place, there'd be more people attending. So you can imagine that people weren't dying with gratitude that he was spending his time doing this. Well, anyway, he did it. And he got as many cases as he could, and he went with these statistics to the public health officials and said, look, this is the number of people that have cancer in Woburn. Look, isn't this really a lot? And, of course, you can guess what he discovered. Actually, the incidence of cancer in Woburn was completely normal, statistically. The rate was no higher in Woburn than anywhere else in the Commonwealth or in the nation. There was no anomaly whatsoever. It was as he suspected that this mother was overwrought and grief-stricken and she'd seized upon this thing. But the reality was, the facts were, there weren't any more cases of cancer in Woburn than anywhere else. And this unfair disease that had struck her son and was robbing him of his health was just something that happened. In her despair, she thought she'd found a reason, but there was no reason. But the mother kept insisting that these statistics couldn't be right. She knew too many people whose kids had cancer. It was more than normal. And she kept telling Bouchon that the water was bad. It smelled awful. It tasted funny. This was giving kids leukemia. And Bruce did not say to her, sit down and shut up. Or he didn't even say to her more kindly, listen, this is hard. I know you're crazed with grief, but the facts are you're wrong. Even though he had already done more than what would be expected to help her, he didn't point out to her that numbers don't lie. Statistically, there are no more cases of cancer in Woburn than anywhere else. What he did was, with her help, he organized more meetings and invited people to come back to the church. Anyone who had cancer in their family. And then this time... They put a map up of the town and they put pins in where the cases of cancer were. And what they discovered was everybody who had cancer came from two neighborhoods. That's why this mother knew all these people with cancer because they were her neighbors. And then they discovered that these two neighborhoods got their water from two wells. Bruce Young figured this out, discovered this. Both wells were near the facilities operated by the W.R. Grace Company. And they were on land that had formerly been part of a tanning factory. The water was bad. It was filled with poison. It was poisoning the children of these families. The mother was right. But of course, no one else knew this or believed this. So Bruce Young started his crusade 
going to officials, sharing with them what he had discovered. When he began, he initially had no idea how the water got poisoned. He just knew it came from these two wells and everybody drinking was getting cancer. But he figured that was the task of these public officials. That's what public health people do. They take this and they figure out what the problem is. Of course, when he went with the problem, he was greeted with skepticism, indifference, even hostility. What did he know? He was only a priest. He should, be going, he should go back and do what priests are supposed to do, which is tend their flock. He should stop meddling in things that didn't concern him and that were outside of his area of expertise. And in fact, this is also what many of the prisoners were saying about him. The church was suffering because he was distracted. He was not attending to the things that he ought to be doing, but instead he was off on this public health wild goose chase. But he wouldn't give up. He persisted. He kept dodging local and state officials and not backing down in the face of their indifference and their skepticism and their hostility. Not backing away from the impatience and the criticism he was getting from his parishioners. And of course, in the end, his perseverance was rewarded. Eventually, others were convinced. The wells were investigated and then closed. W.R. Grace was sued for poisoning the water. I began this story by saying it was a different kind of healing story, and it is. Jimmy, the boy at the heart of this, did not live. He died of leukemia. There was no miraculous recovery from his illness. There was no raising him from the dead. But no more children got cancer from that water. That was stopped. The water was healed. The system was fixed. So you say, where is God in this? Well, what allowed Bruce Young to continue in the face of his own disbelief, in the face of his own skepticism, let alone the skepticism of his parishioners and their public health officials? He never gave up. And what sustained him in this crusade, what permitted him to keep going until he finally won, I would say that was the Holy Spirit moving in him and with him with uh, Anne, the mother of Jimmy. I first learned about this story when I was in bed one night reading Rolling Stone magazine. I was the assistant at the Church of Our Redeemer and I had a subscription to Rolling Stone magazine and I was leaving through it and I opened it up and there facing me was an entire full page color picture of Bruce Young who, as far as I knew, was this sort of nondescript priest in the next town over. What what is Bruce Young doing in Rolling Stone magazine? And then I read about this account and what he had done and his dogged persistence in the face of indifference and how he had finally brought all the facts to bear and W.R. Grace was being held accountable. It was a very moving story. I was quite impressed by him. I thought, this example of a great priest This is like a story from the book of Acts. But there's another difference between this story and the stories in the book of Acts. You may know that a book was written about this account. A movie was made starring John Travolta. Imagine John Travolta starring as Bruce Young, the priest. There's a dream come true. (laughs) John Travolta didn't play the role of Bruce Young, the priest. 
The book that was written, The Civil Action by Jonathan Hart, barely mentioned Bruchon. He occupies about six pages in the first chapter. The entire book is about the lawyer who brought the case to trial, who by most accounts badly sort of screwed it up, spent millions of dollars bringing in expert witnesses, used up all this money, and then got a settlement that basically, I think everybody got $1,000. The author, who wanted to write a book, wrote about the lawyer. Because in our society, people understand lawyers and they're fascinated by them. Lawyers are what sell books, not priests. Lawyers sell books, not priests. Bruce Young with an interesting footnote in the beginning of this story. The real story is the lawyer who drove a fancy car and had a law firm. Which brings us back to me and to you. God is working in the world, in, I believe, in our society, the same way God was working in the book of Acts. Part of the difference is that we're shy about that, we Episcopalians, and we don't tell our story. And part of the difference is the world couldn't care less about our story, which is one of the reasons why we're shy. One of the things that's hard about serving at the Cathedral of St. Paul in Boston, the Cathedral of the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts, is that it couldn't be more anonymous looking. I tell people I'm the dean of the cathedral, and they say, oh yeah, I know that. It's in Copley Square, right? That's a great church building. I say, no, it's not. It's on the common, which is a great place for a cathedral to be in this day and age. It's on the common. They say, there's a church on the common? Oh yeah, it's on the corner with that spire. No, I said, that's Park Street Church. Where, where are you, they say? I say, we're right across the common from the State House. Another good place for a cathedral to be. See, there's a church there? How many people have been there and seen it? Yeah, great. It couldn't be in a better place. We can serve the city 